Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is Professor Vali Nasser, who is Professor of Political Science at the University of San Diego. He's the author of several books on political Islam, most recently, The Islamic Leviathan, Islam and the Making of State Power. Uh, Vali, welcome to Berkeley. Thank you. Uh, tell us a little about your background. Where were you born and raised? I was born and raised in Tehran, Iran. Uh, I got uh, my primary and secondary education in Iran and in England. And then my family migrated to the United States uh, after the Iranian Revolution. And uh, I did my uh, higher education mostly in Boston at uh, Tufts University, uh, the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, and then at MIT. And looking back, how do you think your parents shaped your character? Well, uh, my father's an academic, so uh, my ending up in academia has a great deal to do with that. He's a uh, specialist on uh, Islamic studies, so I uh, got a great deal of knowledge about uh, the religious dimensions of Islam, uh, cultural dimensions, and Islamic history uh, throughout my years of education. And was there a lot of discussion around the dinner table uh, about uh, uh, Islam and politics and Iranian politics and U.S. foreign policy and so on? Well, in, when I was growing up, Islam's involvement in politics was not a major issue mm -hmm. in Muslim countries. Uh, American foreign policy was, uh, Iranian politics itself was, uh, but uh, politics was a separate issue from Islam for most Muslims. So we learned about religion. We learned about uh, its do's and don'ts. Uh, we also learned a great deal, particularly in my upbringing, uh, about the diversity of Islam's cultural expressions, that it is not just about the law, it is not just about the thou shalt and thou shalt nots, uh, but it has a, a very rich cultural, artistic, musical expressions, and that there's a great deal of diversity in the Muslim world from Africa to Southeast Asia. Uh, to the Middle East, and that uh, Islam was lived on a daily basis rather than just acted upon. Uh, do you remember the events of the Iranian uh, Revolution, and, and did it have a big impact on your life, and in what ways? I remember that very well. Uh, I was in Tehran at various points during the height of the revolution. Um, I learned a few things from it. First of all, I saw revolutionary activism uh, as it was unfolding. I also saw uh, the devastating impact that the revolution had on Iranian society and politics and uh, how uh, it really changed the shape of, of Iran as a society. Uh, my family were among the many uh, who left Iran, uh, which at that time included not only people who were in government, but in many ways the best and brightest in the country left. We settled in the United States. Uh, these were during my formative years. And uh, the Iranian revolution brought to the fore the whole issue of the relationship between Islam and politics. Mm -hmm. Is Islam a religion that is inherently political? Is it the directives within Islam that um, mandate uh, this kind of violent action? And increasingly, as the Iranian revolution began to foist the concept of fundamentalism, not only in the West but across the Muslim world, it became a challenge to many in my generation to try to separate Islam from, quote-unquote, the sins of a particular movement or the claims of a particular government, and to understand where the truth is about uh, what is politically motivated and what is prescribed by religion. 
Mm-hmm. Now, uh, before we get into those issues, which uh, your, your work, uh, your scholarship uh, is directed at, uh, let's talk about uh, becoming a political science. Mm-hmm. Uh, why did was it inevitable that you would become uh, a political scientist and, and study uh, these problems from that discipline? I, I like political science ever since I was an undergraduate student at Tufts. I was greatly attracted to political analysis, understanding political movements, understanding roles of governments and states and the like. However, given the circumstances of the time, I became interested in understanding Islamic fundamentalism and the role of Islam in politics as part of political analysis, not as a religious discussion, Mm. which was largely the case then. And increasingly, my intellectual development sort of gelled around providing an understanding of this phenomenon as a political phenomenon. And, and who were your, your mentors in, uh, uh, in, in the course of your studies uh, that had a, an important influence on the direction that your studies took? Well, beyond your own background. Sure. Uh, the, the problem at that time in uh, the study of Muslim politics, which actually is very interesting, is still the problem in the United mm-hmm. States, is that there is a complete disjuncture between uh, those who study Islam, its history, arts, culture, and Islam as religion, and social sciences. Mm -hmm. Uh, Particularly in the late 70s and 80s when I was a student, there was nobody or there was no body of theory that actually provided a fused and comprehensive and uniform approach to these topics. You had political scientists that provided you with the tools of political analysis. And then there were the historians and the Islamists who gave you the detailed uh, knowledge about the religion and the culture and history. So it was largely up to you to mm-hmm. uh, put these together. And uh, that was the challenge that essentially I took as I moved forward with my studies, that, that there has to be a place in political science for understanding the role of religion. Mm-hmm. And, and this was something that had, in a way, been ignored, right? I mean, there, there were some exceptions, some in, in anthropology like Clifford Gertz, but, uh, but not generally in political science. You're absolutely correct, and I believe it's still a problem. And part of our uh, difficulty in understanding uh, religious movements, particularly Islamic movements, stems from this. Anthropology and history, by definition, rely on what Geertz himself called thick description. In other words, you need to get, get your feet wet in actual facts mm-hmm. of a religion, of a culture. How you interpret it is a different issue. But you cannot ignore uh, what culture and religion say. Political science, on the other hand, has been largely focused on, on theoretical issues. And uh, when it comes to the Muslim world, it actually has shunned it, even as an area of study. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very rare that, uh, uh, that there had been a study of Islam in political science in any uh, notable political science department in the United States, and that's still true to, to form to this day. In fact, in recent years, political science as a discipline has been more interested in political economy and then in rational choice and therefore has not really been interested in understanding culture and cultural behavior or culturally motivated behavior within the parameters of political science theory. And in in your work, I get the sense that it is uh, the interface between uh, 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 the work of institutionalists, that is, people who who study institutions and, and the norms Uh, uh, and codes of behavior that operate together with uh, an understanding of the cultural uh, the culture and history of a particular place that actually offers 
insights to the kinds of uh, problems we're facing in today's world. You're absolutely correct. I mean, the fundamental question, uh, which has been the case and it is still today the case, is, is Islamic fundamentalism about religion or is it a form of politics? Mm-hmm. Uh, the most often the knee-jerk reaction in academia as well as the media and policy making environments has to just understand it as religious behavior. It's easier to do that, it's easier to dismiss it, but uh, the problem is that that doesn't have much to do with reality. The reality is that fundamentalism is also about politics. Uh, it cons- fundamentalism consists of organizations, of institutions, of people who respond to political opportunities or or are trying to capitalize on political opportunities or convey interests. And they behave in many ways uh, in the same manner that any rational political actor behaves, except that uh, they do so within a particular cultural environment. And in fact, if we looked at Islamic fundamentalism as a form of ideology, then ideology is not religion. Ideology is more about politics and is about society. And therefore, it is necessary in order to understand Islamic fundamentalism to, to say, well, this much of it is about religion. This is the context, but a particular interpretation of religion. But then this much of it is about politics. After all, fundamentalists are not engaged in religious debates. They're engaged in political debates, whether it's al-Qaeda or whether it's moderate fundamentalists. And in fact, fundamentalists also in Judaism, Christianity, and Hinduism, they are only uh, peripherally interested in religious debates. Their prime area of concern is, is, is political issues. Now, now when you say that, let's, let's explicate that. Is it because it's, it's an argument about politics within the religion? I mean, which, which view of God or of, of virtue uh, will stand up? Is, is it that plus they have to be concerned about politics because the whole religion may uh, be affected by the politics of the national setting? Well, we have, to also, we have to understand that fundamentalism is a very, very recent phenomenon. If you looked at Islamic fundamentalism, it is a late 20th century phenomenon. Mm-hmm. The very first question you can ask is, why now? Mm-hmm. So therefore, it is very much uh, born of the circumstances that Muslims find themselves today. These circumstances don't pertain to religion because the religion has been the same religion for 1,400 years. Mm-hmm. It is that the worldly conditions of Muslims has necessitated or created circumstances for ideological interpretations of their politics. And uh, in the fact, in the circumstances where communist ideology is not there, capitalist ideology is not there, some interpretations of Islam have come to fill that ideological void. But ideologies are always about explaining political and social reality Mm -hmm. to, to individuals. So Islamic fundamentalism's performing the same role. It is performing uh, the role of providing a blueprint and a roadmap for, for worldly existence to individual uh, Muslims. Uh, pol- uh, fundamentalists are keenly interested in politics. Uh, they view politics as the path to individual salvation. Uh, politics is paramount in their thinking. When they make comparisons between fundamentalism or their view of Islam, they don't compare it with Christianity and Judaism and Hinduism. They compare it with capitalism. They compare it with democracy. They compare it with communism. In mean, other words, the points of reference mm-hmm. are Western ideologies, mm. not Western religions. Mm-hmm. So they're very much, uh, fundamentalism is very much a phenomenon of making religion into a worldly ideology and then operationalize it in, in politics. And there are different paths that that has taken from 
Al-Qaeda's terrorism to, uh, you know, more moderate Islamic parties in Turkey or, uh, you know, Malaysia and the like where they want to participate in elections. But by and large, uh, the phenomenon is still the same. In other words, this is a use of religion in order to, uh, to gain certain political ends. Now, before we uh, continue with this discussion of the themes, I want to go back to your research career and, and what uh, parts of the world uh, have you focused on and why did you think that they uh, were a most uh, interesting place to, to explore some of these problems? I focused uh, initially my work on, on Pakistan. Uh, and this is in the late 1980s uh, and throughout the 1990s. Uh, the reason I did that was because I thought Pakistan provided a, a very good environment in which to understand some of these issues that we raised. So I, I worked on the history of an, of an Islamic fundamentalist movement that was first established in the 1930s, openly operated in Pakistani society and politics all the way to the present time. I thought looking at 70 years of organizational development of a fundamentalist party allows you to do real political social analysis. Uh, Pakistan was also a relatively open, it always has been a relatively mm -hmm. open uh, uh, Muslim society. As a result, you could see fundamentalism in, in operation. You could meet with fundamentalists, you could look at their platform. They participated in elections, they participated in social debates. The Arab world has always been much more uh, in, a, in a sort of an antagonistic situation where the, the fundamentalist parties at that time were either underground or at war with the government. Uh, there was no real track record of, of, of seeing how uh, an organization may respond to political incentive and change its ideology and point of view as it moves along. So you don't re you're not really able to do political analysis. So Pakistan was particularly suitable in understanding uh, this whole trajectory of development of fundamentalism. So tell us about this party that you studied and, and one of the most interesting conclusions that you reached about its evolution during this period. Well, uh, the name of the party is Jamaat Islami, which literally means the Islamic party. Its founder was a, a gentleman by the name of Maulana Maududi. Maududi is one of the most influential and earliest fundamentalist thinkers. And Jamaat Islami, along with the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood, is one of the two oldest fundamentalist parties in the Muslim world. It has had an uninterrupted history since the 1930s to the present. It has participated in general elections, has had um, members of parliament, members of government, has been involved in open political process and sometimes underground uh, in, in, in Pakistan. Uh, first of all, my work was to provide a rich history of evolution of a fundamentalist party and th through that to answer some of the questions about why do they come about, what do they want, and how does their demands and worldview change in response to the political realities that they face. And particularly if you juxtapose Pakistan with the Arab world, you see very different uh, conclusions that where you have more open and less uh, dictatorial and harsh governments, fundamentalists tend to remain uh, more moderate. That when mm. they are in, when you mm. keep them in the political process, they tend to uh, respond to political uh, um, interests, opportunities, as well as risks, and, and revise their points of view 
accordingly. Some of this now we see elsewhere, like uh, Turkish Islamist parties uh, are, are revising their ideologies to participate in elections. Uh, but in the case of Pakistan, the, the, the general summary was that uh, uh, the more open the political environment, the, the more inclusive it is, the more moderate and open uh, fundamentalist parties are likely to be, and the more they behave on the basis of real political choices as opposed to ideological behavior. Now, in, in the case of Pakistan, what uh, explains the, uh, uh, the openness and uh, uh, of the political system that allows this moderate evolution of the party that you were studying? Is it, is it the colonial tradition, the British tradition in India and Pakistan? Partly. Uh, partly it's the colonial tradition. For instance, there is an enormous amount of respect for the judicial system in Pakistan, which is also the case in India as, as well. There are cases where the Supreme Court of Pakistan voted on behalf of the Jamaat Islami overriding the government, for instance, in the 1960s. But I think the more important point is that Pakistan is generally a weak state. We don't like to think of it that way. It's been ruled by military. It has nuclear weapons. But that's a paradox. I mean, it's a country that has nuclear weapons and a very proficient military and is capable of staging coups. But the writ of the government in Pakistan does not run in large areas of the country. The penetration of power in rural areas is very minimal. It has to rely on all kinds of intermediaries in order to exert power. A government that's not able to, to get its way by default has to negotiate. And, uh, you know, that's mm -hmm. also lessons we've learned about evolution of democracy in the West. Uh, mm -hmm. Why first in Britain and not in Germany or Prussia? Uh, the, same, the same idea holds there. In other words, Pakistan has had generally more democratic periods than have Arab countries. And when it's had, it has had military dictatorships, these have been far more open and benign than, than the Arab ones. So, so periods of military brutality of the kind we saw in Latin America, where we see in Egypt or Syria, have been largely absent in Pakistan. Tell us a little about uh, Madhudi and the evolution of his thinking uh, with regard to this uh, trajectory of either choosing moderation or, or radicalism. I mean, is it, it did his his guiding hand influence the party toward moderation, and 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 what was the what made the difference in that course? Was it the setting that you've just described? Well, Maududi came from a uh, Maududi's uh, intellectual development happen, happened during the time of partition of India. And uh, his uh, uh, belief was that Muslims were losing control of India because they had, they had uh, become too enmeshed with Hinduism and they were not practicing the proper faith. Mm -hmm. So he began to harp on uh, some kind of uh, purified Islam as a, way as, a, as a way of preserving and strengthening Islam. Uh, and uh, once there was, this was foisted, it gradually became a force unto itself. He generally was, was more of an intellectual than a, than a militant. Maududi believed that societies would become Islamic if the elite in the society were educated in proper Islam. Mm -hmm. And that what he saw was dominoes falling. I mean, once you polish Islam and take away the crust of cultural uh, accretions to it and, you, you know, find what pure Islam is, uh, which in of itself was an innovative idea at that time because uh, we, we didn't think that Islam was lost that need to be discovered, but he, he thought of it that way, which is very much the same as any fundamentalist argument in any tradition. Mm -hmm. 
that once you discovered real Islam and the elite in society uh, adopted it, then the society would become Islamic. And therefore, his view of fundamentalism was very literary because it was directed at the elite of the society. It was not based on political action. It was based on education. Now, within Pakistan itself, as the party began to participate in politics, it began to discover political action. So it began to discover the importance of organization in order to be able to bring the masses to the streets. It began to discover the importance of controlling campuses. For instance, uh, Maududi, Jamaat Islami, uh, gradually took over control of student unions across Pakistan in the 1970s, beating out leftist groups in elections. Mm -hmm. So they learned how to control campuses, how to control students. And uh, gradually they became more of a political activist organization than, a, than an intellectual one. But Pakistan's politics did never required a party to have to go underground. I mean, Jamaat leaders went to prison for a year, two years. They were treated well. They were never tortured. They came out, and they went about their business. The party was shut down, was reopened. Courts voted against it and then voted for it. But there was never a need, as you had in Egypt, for instance, for a party that needs to go underground and then fester and come back as a militant force. Uh, in fact, militancy and extremism in Pakistan were not the consequence of internal pressures were really the consequences of foreign policy in the region. You know, they were the consequences of Saudi foreign policy and the Afghan war. Mm -hmm. That's really what uh, pushed uh, Pakistani fundamentalism towards extremism, not, not the internal politics of Pakistan. But before we talk about this external uh, intervention and, and the whole impact that foreign policies, say the Saudis and the U.S., have, I, I, I would like for you to make clear to us what exactly... Uh, this particular Pakistani party and other uh, uh, Islamic parties want? Uh, is it that they want to make everybody uh, virtuous by returning to the roots of the religion? Or does the religion uh, lead to conclusions about uh, equity and social welfare, and therefore through the party they seek to change the, the policies of the government? Well, uh, there is a combination here. First of all, you have to understand that fundamentalists uh, claim to speak for Islam, but they are a very particular interpretation of Islam. Just like any Hindu would not subscribe to what RSS says Hinduism is, or, or an average Christian would not uh, give uh, Pat Robertson or Jerry Falwell the authority to define Christianity. Mm -hmm. uh, the same is true of Islamic fundamentalism. In other words, Maududi was being the Jerry Falwell or the Pat Robertson of, of Islam. He decided what Islam is, well, who is a good Muslim. He tried to propagate that view, and it's in, within the organization. And obviously the aim of any such group in any religious tradition is to propagate its own view. Uh, how, and, and this view is pre, based on certain presuppositions. Every religion believes that you know, pious individuals provide a pious society that may lead or may not lead to a pious government. Fundamentalists believe that you have to have a pious government first, which then would forcibly make society religious, which then would forcibly make the individual religious. In other words, it's, it's salvation, whether you like it or not. It mm -hmm. would be dished down by the government. And this is very much was the basis of, 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 of his view. And uh, Maududi sort of uh, articulated this, put it out there, and propagated it. 
But like any ideology, it has a life cycle. The way it, uh, fundamentalism unfolded in Pakistan is very much like um, Eurocommunism did in Europe. In other words, it began to water down and, and have to interact with other points of view and political views in the political process in order to win at elections, in order to get recruits and the like. In many levels, what they demanded is uh, the demands of fundamentalists or conservatives everywhere. There, there were moral issues. So it's like the, the, the way in which moral majority thinks about forcing certain moral criteria uh, uh, within on American public and then fighting it out through the political process. So the Jamaat was very much behaving in the same way, trying to propagate a particular view of Islam and trying to uh, do so through the political process, which is where there's the difference with the Arab world, where all of this propagation happens outside the political process. Mm -hmm. So down the road, they eventually ended up with two fundamental uh, 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 two fundamental desires. One is to propagate their view of Islam and to make it universalized. Secondly, to get hold of power in order to be able to do so more efficiently. And in that, they're not very different from, say, right-wing religious groups in the United States, which are simultaneously vying for position of power as well as propagating their view. Now, it's a chicken and egg situation. Do they want the political power in order to propagate the religious view? Or is the political power the end and the religious view is the means? So you do have that kind of also mm -hmm. ambiguity in Pakistan as well. And of course, they could change in the course of exercising power or being successful politically. Yeah, very much so. And you mm -hmm. do so generationally mm -hmm. because you begin with people who are purists for whom politics is the, end, is the means and religion is the end. But as you go through the years of evolution of a movement and the younger people are more activists and no religion less, increasingly religion is really just the medium and politics is the end. Mm -hmm. the, and that's what the benefit is of looking at a movement in long duration is that if you looked at the early Jamaat leaders, they spend large numbers of large amount of their time in prayer and writing and thinking. As you go down, the second generation did a lot more stone throwing and marches than the first one. When you come to this generation, they're pretty much politicians with, with offices and secretaries and are constantly in political haggling and they're doing things that everybody else is doing and, and religion is a minimal amount of their time. Uh, so early Jamaat leaders were by vocation religious. Mm -hmm. Politics was a sideshow. Jamaat leaders in Pakistan today are by vocation politicians. They're professional politicians who happen to be religious. Mm -hmm. And, and you, you've suggested that uh, in, in places in the Arab world, this kind of historical evolution uh, is aborted uh, by the, the lack of uh, any form of democratic system uh, to, to, to let the evolution be, so to speak. Absolutely. And in fact, I began this, uh, this was my idea about Pakistan, but when we now look at Turkey and Malaysia, we see the same, that inclusion breeds more moderation. It is risky. It has to be handled properly. There's always dangers. But when you, you either, as Albert Hirschman said, people can either voice or exit in a political system. If, if, if people cannot voice, they will exit, and then once they're outside the political process, there's only one avenue of expression open to them, and that's violence. And this is not a new concept to the U.S. I mean, the U.S. at some point decided that communism was a big problem in Europe. It was not going to disappear. So you, so you either bring it in the political process, mm -hmm. you make them vested in the political process, you defang them, 
make him institutionalized, although we would always be vigilant against them winning an election. Mm -hmm. But it worked in Spain, uh, France, and Italy, which at one point they won 30 to 40 percent of the popular vote in Italian elections. And you try to separate them from the Bader Meinhof gangs and the Red Brigades of the world. Now, the same holds true of the Muslim world. If you don't have a political environment for them to operate in, you're going to have them underground. And, and you don't force them into decisions that would compromise them, uh, their ideals, and force them to uh, mm -hmm. move in the direction of pragmatism and moderation. Mm -hmm. Now, in, in your latest book, uh, you focus on the relationship of the state to, to Islam, Islamic parties, and Islam in societies. And, and you are comparing uh, Malaysia and, and Pakistan. Pakistan. Let, let's talk a little about uh, Pakistan now and General Zia's policies, because you really set the stage for us to understand already the, the, you know, what was emerging with, within the society with regard to Islam as a presence, but also uh, uh, attached to a political party. What, what did Zia try uh, to do, and, and what would, was he successful at doing as he tried to relate the state to the Islamic forces in society? Uh, in short, Zia's strategy can be called riding the tiger. In other words, uh, fundamentalist parties in Pakistan were unsuccessful politically at the polls. And that was one of the arguments for inclusion. The Jamaat has never won more than 3%, for, well, more percentage, but no more than three or four members to the, to the parliament. Mm -hmm. They are much more successful in socially in mm -hmm. defining uh, the, the framework in which p political issues are discussed. That's also true of the right wing in the U.S., they may not win elections to the Congress, but they can frame key issues like busing, abortion, and the way in which they will get discussed or appointments to the Supreme Court. So in other words, the social influence far exceeds the political influence. By the end of the 1970s, uh, the Jamaat had been very successful in propagating its call for some kind of an Islamic order. And he had convinced large numbers of the population that Islam has certain answers that can deal with Pakistan's problems. And in this, uh, they were just as successful as, say, any socialist party in Europe has been able to convince large majority of the population that socialism of one form or another holds the key. And therefore, a socialist party in Sweden wins the vote. So it was in that nature. Mm -hmm. The Pakistan military decided to capitalize on this. They did not want the Jamaat to be in a position to make a better grab for power, but they understood that the society is very ripe for a, a government that would give them uh, an Islamic answer. So Zia came to power. He had Zia the, was a general. In Zia the was a general. general. He was chief of staff of the military, overthrew the elected prime minister at the time, Zulfaqar Ali Bhutto, who was in trouble with, with the population. He, 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 he took over the government. Uh, Zia had Islamic credentials, so he was, he was a genuine article. He was known to have been a pious colonel, had been reprimanded by his superiors for distributing Korans in the military. In other words, when he began talking about Islam, you know, it was, it was the genuine article. But Zia and the military understood that uh, a government that would be fulfilling the kinds of demands and promises that the Jamaat had spent 30 years convincing Pakistanis of would do well.
-hmm. It is just like if uh, you have a socialist soci society in which it believes that land reform is imperative and you have a government come in and take that slogan and implement it, it's going to get a great deal of benefit. So Zia began to uh, implement a great deal of Islamic measures. Now, it's very important to note that Zia didn't change anything fundamental in Pakistan. Mm -hmm. Pakistan economy didn't change. Pakistan society didn't change. There was no land reform. There was no uh, change in relative relationship between social classes. There was no change in Pakistan's foreign policy. He rather began to implement Islam more at the superficial level. So every meeting of the government would begin with a religious invocation. The people would wear dress, uh, 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 religious dress. There would be a lot of mosques built. There would be a lot of money that would go into various Islamic causes and programs, and you revamp the curriculum of the schools, and, and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. So essentially, he began to create an Islamic state, mm -hmm. uh, which, was not, which was being created from above, not from below. Mm -hmm. uh, it was, and this is a very unique case, and Malaysia is similar, where you have the state proactively Islamizing, not in response to the pressure from below, but because it saw an opportunity in Islamization. Uh, Zia was an Islamically oriented person, but I think what, what he saw was a very interesting phenomenon, that he saw in Islam an opportunity to make the Pakistan state a more powerful state. Mm -hmm. So it's very an Islamic state of Zia was capable of nationalizing religious endowments, mm -hmm. which a secular government could or would not do. It was in a position of taking over large areas of religious welfare, which accounted for an enormous amount of uh, patronage in Pakistan, and, 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 and make that uh, the government's affair. This could not or would not have been done by a secular government. So he created stability and he expanded state power in the name of Islam. Now, the venture fell apart uh, for the reason that, first of all, it was hinged on the military. And when Pakistan was democratized, this notion came apart. Secondly, he was assassinated, and therefore the whole experiment was aborted. And thirdly was that Pakistan was doing this in, while it was in the throes of the Afghan war. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, any policy of riding the tiger uh, yeah. has certain dangers that it's not ultimately a tenable policy. So in the post-Zia period, this project of the state to expand its powers by speaking for Islam and taking, taking the thunder of the fundamentalists, mm -hmm. appropriating the thunder of the fundamentalists, lost ground. But for the time that Zia was there, he was very successful. In fact, I remember one Jamaat Islami leader telling, uh, telling me that, you know, He's saying everything we used to say. So he's basically made us redundant. Mm -hmm. so, so it's really something that we could understand in the United States, co-opting the opposition or the potential opposition. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's no different from what the Republican Party may have done with the, with the conservative right. Now, obviously, in all of this, before his death, uh, uh, a transforming event is the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, the American decision, uh, first under the Carter administration and then the Reagan administration, to support the, uh, uh, the rebels in Afghanistan opposing the, uh, the Soviet puppet regime there, and to use Pakistan and General Zia as a funnel for American aid, uh, which would then uh, go to the Mujahideen who were mm -hmm. uh, fighting the Soviets. Uh, th that must have had a profound impact 
if uh, one is riding the tiger, to use your metaphor, suddenly uh, the, uh, the, at a certain point you're feeding drugs to the tiger, I guess, but at a certain point you no longer control that and, and then the tiger will go off. You're absolutely correct. Yeah. Uh, the, the Afghan episode uh, was both a threat and an opportunity to Pakistan. It was a threat because Soviet Union overnight arrived at Pakistan's northern borders. And uh, General Zia actually looked to Islam and fundamentalism mm -hmm. as a way of creating a wall against communism. Uh, what they didn't want to happen was that the Soviets may sit there for the next 10 years, support communist parties in Pakistan, and then pull the same stunt that they mm -hmm. pulled in Afghanistan, is that you first create a, a, a communist nucleus that then you know, can stage a coup and then bring in the Soviets. So Islam was, was going to, his fundamentalism was going to be foisted as the main barrier to um, communism. And this was actually fortunate because it created a tremendous amount of common ground between Jamaat islami and, and the military. They all agreed they didn't want Pakistan to be communist. Mm -hmm. So, but, but this was nevertheless a major threat to Pakistan's security. Uh, on the other hand, it was an opportunity. It was an opportunity because it provided General Zia with broader powers to co-opt the fundamentalists without compromising Pakistan's foreign policy. Because there was a concert between what the Saudis wanted, what the Americans wanted, what the fundamentalists wanted, and what Pakistan's military wanted. Which was the, whatever is our you know, ultimate goals, our immediate problem is, is containing the Soviet threat and pushing Afghanistan back. Secondly, um, in long duration, Pakistan had always viewed Afghan, Afghanistan and Afghan nationalism as a threat. Mm -hmm. Ever since the British drew the Durand line, Afghanistan had had irredentist claims to north, northern Pakistan or northwestern Pakistan. The, uh, the Afghan war provided an opportunity where Pakistan got the upper hand. And it began to use the, the war against the Soviets and the fact that the Pakistanis could use Islam in order to control the Mujahideen fighters as a way of controlling Afghanistan and Afghan nationalism. And there was no other way for Pakistan to have long-run control over the Mujahideen unless it was done through Islam. And the mm -hmm. only way in which it, it could be done through Islam was if Pakistan itself would remain Islamic. In other words, Islam became central, not just to riding the tiger domestically, but mm -hmm. also to creating uh, Pakistan's uh, regional geostrategic vision. Now, also key to this vision is what I think Zia's regime calls strategic depth, which was the notion that Afghanistan could be used uh, as a staging area for incursions and or for training of personnel who would later uh, 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 take action in Kashmir to restore uh, or bring that uh, uh, region into uh, Pakistan's orbit. Tell us a little about that and, and the role of the fundamentalist uh, parties in pushing that uh, separate agenda, which was much more related to Pakistan nationalism? Uh, you're actually, there's a number of very key issues that you raised in that yeah. statement. Uh, the, the first is that the Afghan war happened also at the time of the Iranian revolution, which is Pakistan lost its closest allies in the region for 30 years, which was the Pahlavi regime in Iran. Mm. It felt very vulnerable on its western side as well as on its eastern side with India. 
and with Afghanistan, with the Soviets sitting on its border. So it used an alliance with the United States and Saudi Arabia to basically uh, fight for a strategic depth in Afghanistan. Now, strategic depth in Afghanistan basically meant that Pakistan would be a much wider territory and it would have nothing to worry about Afghanistan. So the prime interest of Pakistan all the way until September 11, 2001 was to control Afghanistan. It could not control it directly, it had to control it through proxy. And the proxy were first the Mujahideen and then later were the Taliban. Now, this strategy, the Afghan strategy was also a successful strategy. In other words, uh, Pakistanis understood that, you know, with the right kind of Islam and the right kind of geostrategic initiative, you not only can push the Soviets back, but you can actually control the territory. Mm -hmm. So why not apply it to Kashmir? And, you know, even freedom fighters on the ground made the same conclusions. You know, there's the Chechens and the Kosovars and the Kashmiris themselves for a while began saying, well, look, this is the only case in recent history where a superpower, and particularly the Soviet Union, has been forced to leave. They couldn't do it in Hungary. They couldn't do it in Czechoslovakia. Mm -hmm. It couldn't be done in Poland. Mm -hmm. It was done in Afghanistan. Now, they didn't look at this and say it's, a, it's Zia and the CIA and Saudi money. They looked at it and they say, well, it was a jihad. So, so they thought that, well, you know, if you fight in the name of jihad, uh, the Saudis will give you money, you galvanize the population, and the, and the occupier will fall. I mean, surely India is no, no uh, bigger a threat than Russia was. Mm -hmm. So um, the Pakistanis understood it this way. The militants themselves understood it that way. And uh, it was almost natural for the Pakistan military to say, okay, we are fighting this war in Afghanistan. Why not use it in, in Kashmir as well? There was another element as well, and that's that uh, after the, ever since late 1990s and 1977, seven, no, sorry, 1997, 98, Pakistan also felt uh, the, the problem of how do you demobilize a, uh, a, a proxy army like the Taliban or like the Al-Qaeda. And actually, we see what the problem was. Mm -hmm. uh, when the U.S. washed its hands of Pakistan, you know, all of these highly trained Islamic Rambos mm -hmm. were left to their own devices and they became Al-Qaeda. Mm -hmm. Now, Pakistan was cognizant of this. And one of the ways in which they tried to deal with it was find them somewhere new to fight. Mm -hmm. And that somewhere new to fight at times was maybe in Kosovo, maybe in uh, Chechnya, but that was not in large numbers. Maybe okay. some of the more seasoned fighters ended up in Chechnya. Mm -hmm. But you needed somewhere more sustained for them. So... Kashmir also became a way for Pakistan to avoid the headache of demobilizing thousands and, mm. you know, tens of thousands of volunteers and fighters who are armed, who are ideologically motivated, who are coming back buoyant from a victorious jihad and back to a country which has no way of absorbing them. And therefore... Um, they either send them to the far flungs of northern Afghanistan to fight against the Northern Alliance, or they send them to Kashmir. Mm -hmm. And uh, what is the uh, impact uh, of this stew, I guess, or brew, this witch's brew that is created by all of these uh, factors, the, the external uh, interventions and so on with regard to radicalizing uh, 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 the, the Islamic uh, 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 parties and groups 
and moving them away from the uh, uh, from what might have been a moderate trajectory. Right. I mean, is that why everything hits the fan because of these this sequence that we've just described? Exactly. Actually. In my opinion, there are three key events that account for ascendancy of fundamentalism. And all three events happen to converge on Pakistan in some ways, even though it usually goes under our radar even when we discuss fundamentalism. There was, you can always have ideologies out there, but the question becomes, why do ideologies all of a sudden become triumphant and ascendant? I mean, Maududi and the Jamaat Islami may have been in Pakistan a long time, but why did Islam become not only important in Pakistan but globally? The three events are the Iranian Revolution, the Afghan war and uh, Saudi, the, the rise in the price of oil. And, and these t- three events had the, had the following impacts. The Iranian revolution made fundamentalism a viable ideology for opposition, mm-hmm. one that can successfully overthrow a regime. So the, the, the corollary is uh, the, the October revolution in Russia. Now, had the Germans not shipped Lenin back to Moscow, had the Tsar's army not been there, Maybe communism would have remained a quaint uh, phenomenon of Viennese cafes of the 1920s. Mm-hmm. But, you know, certain circumstances came together to produce the Russian Revolution, and then after that you were dealing with a new reality. So the Iranian Revolution may have not been inevitable. The Shah may have acted differently. Khomeini may have acted. Well, once it happened, it had a cataclysmic impact. And you could see that even moderate fundamentalists were saying, well, you know, look at Khomeini, he's the model. Then you had the Afghan war which in large measure was like the Spanish war, the Spanish mm-hmm. civil war for the, for the mm-hmm. left. In other words, they went from all over the Muslim world. They went and fought. They went and fought sometimes for 10, 20 years. Somebody like Osama bin Laden has never really held down a job. He went to Afghanistan when he was 17, got military training, never really psychologically left Afghanistan. I mean, mm-hmm. these are, that's what I'm saying. There's look, look, an Islamic version of Rambos. I mean, mm-hmm. highly trained, uh, professional guerrilla mm-hmm. fighters who are not going to be absorbed back into an economy easily. And there are tens of thousands of them that, that remained in Afghanistan. It was also a watershed event because uh, uh, fundamentalism was successful in, in, in rolling back a superpower. So if the Iranian revolution was successful in rolling back a regime, Afghanistan pushed the buck further by rolling back a superpower. So it made fundamentalism much more of a triumphant phenomenon. The third uh, side of this is that ever since 1974, when oil came to Saudi, oil money came to Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia began to universalize its own brand of Islam, which is Wahhabism, which is a particularly conservative, hardline, and literal reading of the religion. It is called Wahhabism because the majority of Muslims, for the most, for the longest period of time, viewed this as an ism outside the mainstream. It was so hard line. But since 1970s, with the backing of Saudi money, it has become much more mainstream. It's, uh, many of its sensibilities have been mainstream. It's almost like if you were to think Southern Baptists spending a lot of money to make the Quakers buy into a lot of their values and presuppositions. Mm-hmm. So this, the impact was that the Saudis began to bankroll conservatism mm-hmm. uh, across the Muslim world, which made it much more receptive to fundamentalism. Now, all three of these phenomenons, which account for fundamentalism more than anything you can find in the Quran or the scripture, converge on Pakistan. It bordered on Iran and was directly impacted by the Iranian revolution. Uh, it fought the war in Afghanistan. In other words, it was, many of the people we say participated were Pakistanis as well as pa- people on the border. In other words, 
they lived the Afghan war, and the Saudi money was lavishly spent in Pakistan as well. So, so the convergence of all of these happened within Pakistan, which, which at the same time was a weak state with internal problems, with a fertile ground for fundamentalism to spread. And then uh, uh, everything sort of snowballed in the late 90s to produce, if you would, a second generation much more violent, intolerant, and extremist version of Islam, which was product of the Afghan war and the investment in the Afghan war. Now, with this uh, 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 insightful sort of broad picture of, of the changes in Islam and its relation uh, to global events, I, I want to ask you now, uh, what is it that, uh, how should U.S. foreign policy address uh, uh, after 9-11 uh, these complexities? Right. Well, there are, th th that again, you raise a number of mm. uh, very important issues here. Uh, the first is, is, is that um, there are obviously key issues still that animate uh, political opinion in the Muslim world and maybe push it in the direction of, uh, uh, of, of fundamentalism, like the Palestinian-Israeli issue or the Iraq issue now are sort of, if you would, uh, those wedge events. Uh, well, we need to handle those clearly, methodically, rapidly, and get past those. But more basically is that um, we ought to follow a policy of separating moderates from extremists. The policy we followed in Europe vis-a-vis -vis communism. Mm -hmm. uh, to understand that you know, we're dealing with an ideology that has, has been ascendant. But it is not religion, it's ideology. Uh, the worth of an ideology is what it delivers to the population. The worth of an ideology is that a population buys into it because it doesn't understand or see any other viable alternatives. So if we want to uh, modify or defang fundamentalism, we need to present Muslims with, a, or with, with political environments in which they can evaluate other options, uh, mm -hmm. environments in which fundamentalism and what it promises and what it asks in terms of sacrifice will not appear uh, high on anybody's list. And uh, thirdly, uh, also try to increasingly separate moderates uh, from radicals. I mean, in our own society, we're tolerant of people who hold very conservative views on abortion, vote accordingly, but who refrain from engaging acts of violence against abortion clinics or gynecologists. Mm -hmm. uh, and we, we deliberately separate those. Uh, or we separated those who participated in violent militia movements from those who are simply anti-US government. And, and therefore, we need to follow policies that, that would uh, prevent fundamentalism from having a complete hold, on, uh, unrivaled hold on public opinion. And we should not contribute to an environment in which we say, okay, here's the Muslim world, fundamentalists speak for the Muslim world, hence they're all fundamentalists. And that, that's the best we can do for fundamentalism is to just hand over the reins of power and uh, the right to speak for, for, for uh, a billion people to, to fundamentalists. So in, in a way, one, if I follow your logic, then, then what we are now doing in Pakistan may be just the opposite of what we intend. In the short term, we're supporting a regime that uh, is aiding us in the fight of 
against al-Qaeda, which is sort of cleaning up, up the mess that was created by all that you've just described. But in the course of doing that, we're uh, 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 latching on to uh, a military ruler who seems to even be more rigid than Zia in clamping down on all of the forces that might lead to democracy, which would then create a framework in which uh, moderate Islamists might emerge. Absolutely. In fact, the tragedy with Pakistan is that uh, uh, Pakistan, as I said, was a relatively open society. Instead of being nudged in the direction of building on democratic institutions that were present as, as, as corrupted and as inadequate and uh, stillborn as they were, but at least they were there and there was something to build on, we're moving in the direction of uh, a military government. Now, in the short run, we might say there was no choice. We needed to fight al-Qaeda. There, there was no other political institution or military institution that we could rely on, we have to do it. But we have to be cognizant of, that, of the fact that we don't want this to be a long-run strategy. What appears to be happening in Pakistan, unfortunately, is that we're applying our Arab model there. What we did in a lot of the Arab world, is said, is that so long as you contain your governments and follow basic premises of American foreign policy, we will give you funding and we'll turn a blind eye to your violation of human rights. And then we ended up in a catch-22 situation with this because our policy began producing violent anti-American movements. And then the only people we could rely on to suppress those were the same brutes who were the causes of it. Mm -hmm. So we keep giving more and more money to Egypt and you know, Morocco and Jordan in order to suppress the very forces that are caused by the presence of these people in the first place. And we shy away from pushing them to open up the system. Now, this seems to be the direction Musharraf's going in. Okay, I'll, I'll crack. Every time pressure increases on him, he delivers something. So first he supported the war. Then when he came to the time, close to the time of elections, and he banned Benazir Bhutto and Nawaz Sharif from participating, he delivered an al-Qaeda cell in Karachi. So all criticism of his violation of democratic uh, um, procedures was suspended in Washington. So Musharraf is basically becoming a Pakistani Sadat. Mm -hmm. He may end up being very popular here if he ends up handing over Osama bin Laden at some point. Uh, but uh, but he, he is obviously systematically dismantling democratic institutions in Pakistan by gerrymandering the constitution, by, by gerrymandering elections. And uh, what we have to be prepared is that in 20 years uh, we may be facing a, a, a sort of an Egyptian version of Islamic jihad in, in Pakistan. And we have to think very clearly about uh, what that means in a country with nuclear weapons. Uh, one final question, uh, and that is, I, uh, looking back at, at uh, this journey, this intellectual journey uh, that you've taken uh, and your background, I, I, I would conclude that, that you really don't subscribe to Huntington's uh, theory of a clash of civilizations, that, that in, in fact uh, that creates a rigidity with regard uh, to our perceptions as to what uh, is the Islamic world and, and the West may have in common. Is that a fair assessment? It is a fair assessment. I mean, I, I did study with Huntington at some points when I was at MIT. I have a great deal of respect for his work. I think uh, there are many elements that he touches on that are true. It's at the level of taking anecdotal evidence and then sort of enshrining it as a theory that then explains everything, that's where the problem is. In other words, there is no doubt that some in the West view 
the rest of the world as the other. That there are those in the Muslim world who, who view the West uh, as a bogey. But this is not the beginning and end of the analysis. In other words, there's a lot uh, uh, of, of diversity on both sides, and there's a lot uh, of politics that happens on both sides. The problem with Huntington's approach is that it essentially removes politics from politics. Mm. <laughs> In other words, there's no more politics. We're all guided by, by what mm -hmm. we're born into, and uh, that decides all politics, mm -hmm. uh, which is to say that the U.S. will behave always in a particular way irrespective of what its interests are, which I don't think is true. And it also presupposes that fundamentalists or Muslims will always behave in ways in, without, which are prescribed by culture rather than interest. Well, Huntington misses on a point that the reason the Muslims are behaving in this way is, is not cultural. It's because the methodology that Khomeini put forward paid enormous amount of political dividend. Mm -hmm. The, the approach he took against the United States popularized them in the Muslim world, allowed them to galvanize power and consolidate power uh, in Iran, uh, you know, enabled them to achieve many things, uh, whereas um, fundamentalism has yet to face a defeat for fundamentalists to recalibrate and respond differently. But fundamentalists, just like Americans, when they are operating in a political environment, look at what works and what doesn't work. Uh, whether fists raised in the, in the air with slogans work or they don't work. Mm -hmm. uh, we're seeing this in Turkey right now. I mean, the, the leading candidate for, the, for, for prime minister in Turkey, uh, Erdogan, Recep Erdogan, was put in jail for being an Islamist a number of years back. He wants to be prime minister of Turkey. He knows it's possible through the election, so he came out and said, I never was an Islamist. I support joining the European Union, and I don't want to change anything in our relationship with the United States. He's actually now more pro-American than the secular leftist party that's in power. So uh, Huntington's theory basically is so high level, it's such an overarching framework of analysis that then it basically is, is closed-circuited. It does no room for any kind of political analysis. And ultimately, the way out of here will be through politics. In other words, there has to be uh, a, a, a reward and retribution uh, environment in which that, that Muslims will begin to make political choices that would make him inclusive uh, in, in, in mainstream global politics. On that uh, positive note, uh, I want to thank you very much you. for spending this time with us and, and helping us understand this, this uh, very uh, complex world uh, that we're facing today. Thank you very thank much. Thank you for having me. And thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history.